Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Threat Show, where we talk about uh, interesting threats that are starting to emerge out in the news today. Um, I'm Robert Wagner, and I'm broadcasting this week from Gurkhan in uh, sunny Grand Rapids, or maybe not so sunny today. Uh, and with me, I've got... Hi, I'm Darian Kinland. Yep. And also as a special guest, I have Chris Wilder from TAG. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, Chris Wilder. I'm a senior analyst and research director at TAG Cyber. Uh, we're an industry analyst firm that um, typically helps enterprises and vendors to understand cybersecurity and understand how to protect their enterprise. Fantastic. And Chris's team does a great job with research. So he's uh, offered to join in on the call this week and give us uh, some insight from his team as well. So with that, Darian, what do we got going on this week? Yeah, there's quite a bit of different mix of, of issues, vulnerabilities, and threats, honestly. Some new and some old, and a lot of uh, a lot of resurgence in topics that we've covered from past weeks, ironically. Yeah, perfect for Halloween. We've got some ghosts haunting us again from the past. So yeah. let's jump into this first one. We've got some uh, exchange stuff going on here. What's this? Yeah, so we covered in, in past sessions that there's two new zero-day vulnerabilities within Microsoft Exchange, right? And right. Uh, as we mentioned in the past, Microsoft was a little bit unsure about the mitigation guidance, right? They would you know, suggest, hey, this is what you would do to deploy the, the, the fix in case you can't deploy a patch yet. Unfortunately, yeah. it didn't, the original fix didn't work correctly. Then they right, the yeah. <laughs> so you went through all the trouble to make the mitigation and then you're like, wah, wah. Right, exactly, exactly. So what's happened now is this window of uncertainty and vulnerability has been, as expected, exploited by a number of different threat groups, one of which has been able to successfully deploy Lockbit ransomware onto vulnerable exchange servers. So this is kind of the next stage <laughs> of this. Um, you know, the real question will be whether or not other you know, malware groups or threat groups follow suit. I think it's really right. time. And if if anything, this should be yet even more reason to deploy this uh, patch to exchange out of band. <laughs> yes, patch and start backing up those exchange servers as regularly as you can, yeah. un unless you can afford to lose all of your email. I mean, what what's worse that could happen? Right, right. It's... <laughs> You know, email servers are, are are the big game nowadays for whatever reason. This is interestingly unusual for us because normally we see uh, smaller enterprises that typically are hit with these vulnerabilities because they don't have the resource or the know-how or the background to be able to, to, to go off and patch these. Um, right. Now pretty much everybody, everybody's moved to Office 365 into the cloud. And so it just says, well, that's Microsoft's problem now. So it's a lot of the big guys, especially the financial services, and the highly regulated enterprises are the ones that are, are really, uh, they're very concerned about this. Interesting. And that's because they're still running on-prem? Yep. Yeah. And that makes sense. It's, it, it's, you know, the, the whales on the beach and uh, start to stink. <laughs> <laughs> the mitigation here is simple, though. Patch your server, get it done. Yeah. I, I know it's going to be a pain in the butt in some cases, but uh, we got to get yeah. the, the patches pushed out. Absolutely. Well, yes, that's number one piece of advice we give. <laughs> so what's next, Darian? Yeah, so uh, Fortinet's 
confirmed again that you know the vulnerabilities that they previously talked about have been actively exploited by a number of different threat groups. So in case you didn't have a reason before to out-of-band deploy patches to any Fortinet networking infrastructure you might have, this is, again, yet another reason to deploy that ASAP, you know, potentially out-of-band so that you're no longer giving attackers a foothold into your, in many cases, production, test, dev environments where you have, you could have this type of uh, gear deployed. So this includes not only their switches, but also VPN concentrators as well. You know, quite frankly, it's it's just another way for an attacker to start enumerating, you know, what choice infrastructure to really go after if they're able to get into and see the internals of your production environment. Right. Yeah. So they can get an entire lay of the land. They'll probably build a better network diagram than you have yourself. <laughs> and uh, they'll be able to uh, poke their way through your environment pretty quickly. So, wow. So a lot of versions impacted here, a lot of devices impacted here. This is an interesting one because, you know, a lot of organizations typically don't know how to patch hardware either. So, and, you know, it's, you just, there's, there's no virus protection on, on, a, on a firewall. So, it, their operating system runs way too light to run any sort of protection like that. So, so you mean you don't just take the CD and put it in the router and, and that's how you patch it? That's... Yeah. No. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. So yes, um, make sure you, you have someone on staff or if you outsource this to a third party, make sure that they know how to update the firmware on your hardware. Um, it, it, like uh, Chris pointed out, is a little more difficult than patching an OS uh, in some cases, but you need to get this done. Absolutely. So the third right. on our list is focused around another email-based threat vector. In case you've got a you know organization that says, you know what, I'm done with Exchange, let's move off of it onto something else. They might go with Zimbra, which is the open source version of Microsoft Exchange. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, there is yet another vulnerability within uh, this stack focused around processing untrusted email attachments. If you recall, a couple of weeks back, we talked about how Zimbra failed to properly parse and analyze, I think it was tar archives yes. uh, in email attachments. Well, this latest vulnerability follows that same vector, just focused around malicious Java attachments, believe it or not. So by simply <laughs> sending an email to someone's mailbox that's being processed by Zimbra, if the email contains a malicious Java attachment that code <laughs> will get executed on the Zimbra server, giving the attacker full control of the Zimbra server. Again, not good. No. And this, uh, this particularly uh, can impact some of smaller organizations who have exchanged with just too expensive yeah. or whatever, but they still want their users who want their Outlook client. This is one of the solutions they'll put in place to, to, to save money, but still provide the, the users the experience they're used to. So funny thing, with the, I mean, so we've got several ghosts taunting us, Java and Zimbra, um, but uh, this, is, this is one, I mean, patch for sure, but you could also block Java attachments at the gateway, right? Uh, I, I can't see a legit reason yeah. 
for Java attachments to be coming through in the first place. Right. It kind of opens the door to, all right, we've now seen two different vulnerabilities focused on Zimbra processing email attachments, right? Is this particular well dry now, right? Are there other right. We'll see. I would not be surprised if in another week or so we encounter and report on yet another vulnerability dealing with some other bizarre you know, attachment type that Zimper supports and processes. So right, which might- is a pattern we've seen before, right? You've yeah. predicted this before. Yeah, absolutely. So to your point, you know, um, limiting the attachment types that the email server even processes or allows could be a great, you know, strategic mitigation to dealing with this category of problem. Right on. And Chris, what does your team usually see in, in patterns like this where somebody finds a, a vuln and then all of a sudden it seems that a whole bunch of other people find additional ones in the same code? What we've seen, well, especially with Zimber users, um, they tend to be more sophisticated um, IT teams just because, you know, most organizations go with Microsoft because it's easy and, and uh, sure. a lot of times it comes down to, comes down to religious war. Um, so I agree with you on the, on the you know, blocking, you know, block, blocking Java attachments. Typically, when, when, um, when you start getting the pile on, kind of what it what usually looks like, normally when you start getting the pile on, I think what happens is the, the enterprise or the vendors that, you know, the, the, the software manufacturers, they tend to move very, very quickly to be able to, to get the patch, get it done, and, and mitigate uh-huh. it. I mean, that's the benefit of having a bunch of vulnerabilities in one, one bucket. You know, Zimber has a tough time prioritizing. Cool. Uh, what's next, Darian? Yeah, so fourth on our list is a threat group called Polonium. Now, this mm. particular group has been covered by Microsoft earlier this year, but yeah. he sets followed up with their analysis of this group, primarily uncovering that they're based out of Lebanon, mm. partially funded by Iran, going after firms in Israel, focused on IT, law, communications, media, the like. It's interesting because the tool set that Polonium uses is unique. It's not previously known. And they're focused on large scale, I would say, wholesale information theft, mm. specifically against cloud storage services that most medium sized, small and medium sized organizations likely use. So uh. we're talking about Dropbox, OneDrive, Box.com, FTP servers. These are all different, you know, cloud storage systems that typically organizations use where they store their sensitive data. In this case, Polonium's built custom malware to go after and steal data in those corresponding Mm. Uh, platforms very easily and probably without an easy way to detect that they're stealing things right i mean once they get in you're probably not going to notice that theft right exactly so you know this is not the first type of malware that gets deployed they'll they'll deploy other malware to kind of get a foothold into an employee's computer system right and then once they've got the employee's credentials they then deploy this second stage or third stage malware, which then starts mm-hmm. to steal, you know, information that the employees authorized to be able to author and see and, and organize right. across all these different cloud storage yeah. platforms. I love the fact that we're talking about somebody else other than Lazarus and TNT. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we do about probably 700 vendor briefings a year at Tag. Yeah. And, one of the massive one of the massive trends that we've we've been watching we've seen this is 
matter of fact, typically I'll, we'll do about three or four briefings with companies that are doing SaaS security or cloud security to solve problems just like this. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of, and if you, if you kind of look at the, in order of kind of the, what we're seeing is storage security, number one, number two is SaaS security, number three is cloud security. It's pretty much in that order. And so it's, uh, it's becoming a big, big industry and a big business. And, and uh, just because of the fact that these guys are getting way better and, um, you know, the Israelis, a lot of the innovations coming out of Israel. Right on. Yeah. One other mechanism that organizations need to think about is, you know, not only detecting and blocking the malware potentially before it causes damage, but just analyzing the audit logs, if they're available for some of these file storage platforms could be very helpful, Uh, especially if you're trying to detect, hey, large scale, you know, data theft by a particular employee or massive numbers of downloads um, could be a smoking gun here to help identify and uncover this type of threat vector ultimately. Right. And, th- and this isn't, you know, like uh, user behavior analysis. This is simple standard deviation from the norm, right? If all of a sudden someone's data movement spikes crazy, that's always suspect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this, this can be exhibit A as to why that type of analysis can be <laughs> Yeah. Right on. <laughs> Just 100% agreeing with Darian on this because uh, you're absolutely right. You know, if an employee that normally works during the day and starts uploading a whole bunch of data at three o'clock in the morning, you might you might want to look at that. Right, so, right. And this does not take advanced machine learning or anything like that. This is simple oh, math. It does not. No. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. Well, what's our? We got one more here, don't we, Darian? Yeah. Last on our list is a vulnerabilities focused around a built-in security mechanism within macOS called Gatekeeper. Now, Gatekeeper, mm-hmm. a lot of people feel like is a speed bump, a security speed bump for most organizations and users. It's designed to prompt the user when they download a file on the internet through their browser, you know, to say, hey, you know, before you open this file, you downloaded it from potentially mm-hmm. an untrusted source. Are you sure you want to, you know, open this, this file up? Uh, that's really the purpose of Gatekeeper, to kind of sanity check and say, hey, this came from an untrusted source. Well, right. it turns out that researchers found uh, a way around this speed bump by packaging up a particularly crafted archive or uh, compressed file that uh, gatekeepers fooled into thinking, oh, this is a trusted system file. And so that <laughs> wow. way the user double clicks on it, it ultimately opens and you know, any sort of malware can be delivered without any sort of prompt from Gatekeeper. That's pretty clever. So it's not tricking you to think it's coming from a trusted source, but literally a trusted file on the system itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So at the very least, the attacker can use this vulnerability to achieve the same level of access as if uh, a normal user had uh, access to that computer system. And then potentially use it as a springboard to get, um, you know, potentially root level access to the the endpoint through other vulnerabilities. Pretty scary. Uh, of course, the, the the other well-known way around Gatekeeper is most users don't read that pop-up anyway, and they click right. yes immediately. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm saying, look, this is a speed bump. Exactly. I think the good news here is that this particular vulnerability was fixed in the most recent uh, Mac OS round of, of security updates. 
So as long as you keep your Mac OS systems up to date, uh, fully patched, this will have been resolved already. But in case you haven't done that, this yes. could be good motivation to, to get the systems up to date. As and well. as you pointed out in the past, Mac, sometimes uh, there's a bit of delay from when the release is pushed to when your automatic update picks it up. So right. don't wait. Just go into Apple, you know, and, and check for updates and, uh, and, and you'll find it. Um, folks uh, that have managed Mac OS devices can do things like enforce not allowing users to even say OK to untrusted things like that. Don't make it an option. Um, and, and Chris, what other uh, what other advice would you give uh, around this particular one? You know, we haven't really seen this much at all. With our um, entertainment clients, because they're typically all 100% Mac-based, they're pretty tight. They, they keep their keeping organizations pretty tight. But right. what, what are the, um, kind of going back to, you know, the whole patch piece of this is, especially with Macs, you get, you know, if you get going with somebody like a, a Tanium or you know, it, it, uh, implementing that within the organization helps a lot. And that's right. Kind of, that keeps your ahead of the curve on that stuff. But most people, like, like you guys said, it's, uh, a Mac update's very quick and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty automatic and it's a lot less cumbersome than a lot of other things. Cool. Busy, busy week in threats for sure. Um, it's also been a pretty busy week um, in other security news as well that it doesn't have quite uh, uh, anything to do with threats necessarily. Um, and that's uh, the, all the news around uh, Joe Sullivan and, and Uber, um, which you've been following very closely, haven't you, Chris? We have because um, uh, our CISO clients are calling us and you know really trying to figure out exactly what they need to do in order to avoid being on a cover Wall Street Journal and um, for bad reasons. Um, and so you know he, he the big thing with, with Joe is he he didn't do the he did not do the right thing and what he disclosed versus what what he documented inside of his organization were two completely different things. Yeah, so the jury was very, they were not very lenient on him. They, they <laughs> yeah, so we gave, you know, the guidance that we're giving right now to, to CISOs are, number one, you know, keep your ethical compass sharp. Um, you know, right. you know, make sure that you make sure that, you know, you're, you're doing the right things. And, if, you know, if you have any doubt, don't do it. Right. The next, next piece is, is, this is also, we're also making sure that our CISOs establish and develop relationships specifically with the FBI um, mm-hmm. cyber crimes division normally you can go you can normally go to a uh, you know your local field office and they'll have an agent there that, that can help you out with that but that's important to get that going to avoid you know build that relationship to avoid you know any kind of challenges I mean uh, my my colleague yeah my colleague Ed used to um, invite these guys into AT&T he was CISO at AT&T for 30 years I invite everybody out in, they buy a bunch of pizza and just stand around and talk about their kids. That was so important. That made it really, made their relationship a lot easier. The third thing is disclose. I mean, when in doubt, disclose, disclose, and disclose again. Sure. And you let let the DOJ come back to you saying, you're giving us too much damn information. Um, (laughs) And uh, (laughs) that's that's, that's a perfect world. and then, you know, the last couple of things that, you know, outside of ethics and things like that is really just going back, getting, getting legal involved from the start is important. But also one of the things that CISOs are now very concerned about is, you know, okay, we've got cybersecurity insurance. So how does that protect me? So right. you're going to see a lot of CISOs, especially, especially if they're at, at the board level or director level, 
they're going to be start. They're going to be put on riders for uh, uh, E and O insurance as as well as directors insurance, which most sure. organizations should have. But but a lot of times most CISOs are not covered in, in the in the E and O rider. So yeah, that's. Yeah, as long, yeah. And as long as we're talking about insurance, too, um, and, and this is a tip I picked up from a presentation by Carl Hertz back at Besides Las Vegas. Um, one of the most important things to make sure that's in your insurance is insurance for the communications when you have an incident yeah. to begin with. Um, so much of your money can get burned up by uh, all of that process and the lawyers required and everything else. I assume that Uber had it, and I assume that Joe wasn't an unethical person, right? What, what do you think drives a person to all of a sudden panic like that and make the wrong choice. I don't know. You know, the cover-up's the crime. You know, he he hasn't been at Uber for a very long. Uh, he hasn't been there for, I think it's a few years. I think he left a while ago. It was just, I think he, at the time, he was uh, he was young CISO. Um, sure. And I think what happened was, you know, he just didn't want to he didn't want he didn't want to be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. And, <laughs> right. You know, right. Was, so you know, it's like uh, it's like it's like politicians. You know. Nine, nine, nine times out of 10, the cover-up thing to get you in trouble. Right. Yeah. And, and in this particular case, he didn't really, I mean, if, if he had disclosed, like you'd said, right from the outset, he probably wouldn't have suffered much damage. Maybe he would have been out of work for like a month or no. something like that. But I, I've yet to see a CISO who got breached that didn't get a job somewhere else within a couple of weeks. I mean, yeah. they're, 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 yeah, they're yeah. so needed. The demand is so high that you're really not going to ruin your job or your career, your reputation. If you take the ethical um, disclosure uh, path. Yeah. That's so important. It is. And in fact, and, and that's why you know, I hear a lot of people talking about how important just having a little humility in our industry really is. Right. So uh, yeah. But with that, thank you all for the great discussion. This has been an awesome session. It's about to start raining on me, so I need to get inside. Um, but uh, we'll see y'all next week. Appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Thanks, hey, thank everyone. You, you bet. Thanks for coming right. on, Chris.